0: this podcast contains adult content some of the themes or topics may include information on murder kidnapping torture dismemberment maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity this podcast will also include explicit horrible and foul socially unacceptable totally uninhibited adult themes language So if you're easily
1: offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep
0: in mind.
1: Parental discretion is advised.
0: Wild Bill, welcome to the show. Very happy to have you on here today. And for people who do not know who you are, you are doing prison time in Panama right now. I think about 46 years was your sentence for being a hitman and killing five Americans down there. The shock and awe factor of the introduction is totally over. Bill, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself?
1: Well, my name's William Halbert, William Dathan Halbert. Everybody in the whole world calls me Wild Bill. uh, I'm 43 years old. Uh, I'm serving 46 years, 46 years and five months inside the worst prison system in Central America, uh, in Panama. Uh, I have been in prison for 12 years and, and six months, and I was arrested in 2010 in July of 2010, um, yeah, I'm serving 46-year uh, sentence for a I grew up in the United States. I grew up in North Carolina in the mountains. I'm just a redneck kid from there. And uh, now I find myself here. Uh, it's been a long and crazy ride to get from one place to another. I was a professional killer, a hitman, uh, and a cartel associate here in Central America for between, active between the years of 2005 and 2010 when I was arrested.
0: Wow, man, that is crazy. And I cannot wait to find out how you got from... A kid in North Carolina to where you are now, but let's start off with your childhood, man. Like, what kind of childhood you have was pretty normal, or was it a bad one? Or
1: you know, I really had a normal childhood. That's the thing that you know, people like, for instance, I people people think of a a killer or or like a serial killer. They 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 try to brand me as a serial killer, which scares me. I don't I don't want to be a serial killer. That sounds horrible. I mean, what I did was bad enough. Don't get me wrong, but. But I was a professional killer, meaning I'm uh, killing for, for hire, for money. I had a great childhood. My parents had two, you know, my parents lived together, were married. Uh, it was very, they were all, always in church. Um, and so I had a really normal childhood. I didn't do any of that, like hurting animals or none of that stuff, you know. And uh, I just had a really normal and good childhood. I, I played American football in high school, married my high school sweetheart, had three kids quickly. You know, it was a normal a really normal life until all of that sort of fell apart. How do you get, you asked earlier, how do you get from like a normal existence to this madhouse existence that I'm living now and have been living in? And I'll tell you what happened to me. I I had always had aspirations of being a politician. And when I got divorced, the, the one, when, when did it all go wrong? And I'll tell it to you. It's, it's like this. I got divorced and... Because we're in a custody battle and several other things that actually gave us both contempt of court, found us both me and my ex-wife in contempt of court. And when that happened to court and he gave me three weeks in prison, two weeks, excuse me, 14 days in prison, in, in jail. And I lost it. I said, are you, are you out of your mind? I lost it in court. I said, I played by all of the rules, literally. And I had, I really had played by all the rules. And, and you're going to put me in jail? You're going to make me a criminal? And so I told, and I don't know, I snapped. I really, did. I mean, it really broke something. I, I was trying really hard to do, do everything right, and it was a terrible, it was a really rough divorce, you know. And, and so I, I told my lawyer. My lawyer's name was Bill Gardo. He was a, this old country boy from Western from Hendersonville, North Carolina. And I told him, I said, "Get me that thing on the weekends. Tell him I'll do it on the weekend." So he says, "Okay, he'll do, he'll serve the time, but he wants to serve on the week." he's got a job blah 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 i didn't have a job i was in my own you know, i was in my own business I had my own business but so he he got me to let me do it on the weekends and i thought you'll never see me again this is the last time you'll ever see me and i told him i, I remember specifically this line i said it It's over and over, over in my mind i said if they want to see a fucking criminal i'm going to show them the best damn criminal there is and i did and that's exactly what i did i went mad i'm mean, not mad i went really actually really good at what i was doing and so I can't really talk about anything I did in the States because I don't want to have another case. And most of those things have passed the statute of limitations, but I never killed anybody in the United States ever. But I did do some things I shouldn't have done and, and to amass about $300,000. And I had been to Costa Rica, it's about $300,000. And I took the duct tape and put it in $100 bills. And $300,000 in $100 bills said, isn't very much. I mean, It doesn't not very much. It's very small, actually. And so I put it on the inside of my thighs. I was pretty fat back then. And I duct taped it to the inside of my thighs snatched up my, my girlfriend and said, let's get out of here. But I got I, I went to the Bahamas first, and from Bahamas to, to Mexico, and from Mexico to Belize, and from Belize to San, El Salvador, and El Salvador to Costa Rica. I had been to Costa Rica on vacation in 2013, and it was the only place I'd ever been outside the United States except for Ireland. I went to Ireland once as well. And so I thought, you know, when you don't know what you're doing, you go where you know. And I went to this, like, super far out jungle place in Costa Rica called Puerto Viejo in de Talamanca. So I went back there and just kind of, like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I got 300 grand, you know? And so that money went fast. And that's another thing. When you're living as a fugitive, your money goes fast. And it's not like, here's another thing, too. Like, if you're living as a fugitive, it ain't like you just go and get a job, man. I mean, you can't put roots down anywhere, you, you can't buy any property. You can't do anything like that because... I mean, who knows what's going to happen to you, and you're always looking over your shoulder and so on and so forth, and you might have to run any time. And I didn't know how wanted I really was. Not very much, I think, at that time. I I thought that I was really wanted, but I was on America. I I didn't come out on America's Most Wanted once, but... I don't think that I was as wanted as I thought I was. Nobody's really looking for me, you know. I mean, like, I think when you are a fugitive, they just kind of sit back and wait for you to screw up. And and yeah. I didn't because I wasn't in the United States, and they didn't know they didn't know that I wasn't in the United States. So so they're just like waiting. You know, when you when you're like a fugitive, how many fugitive, how many tens or hundreds of thousands of fugitives are there in the United States? I'm a bunch. And so the, the government just sits back and waits until you get stopped at a traffic stop or you get arrested or something. Or, you make a mistake and while well, they, you know, they got your importance That's what, that's how they chase you, so to speak as a fugitive. And I like, if you're a high profile fugitive, maybe they do do some sort of manhunt, but I wasn't. So I started working as a bug captain. I found this guy and uh, on accident and I started working just like by happenstance. I, but every, there's another thing I want to say. Everybody thinks like, Hey man, central America is the banana Republic, you know, Costa Rica, Panama, Nicaragua. I mean, there's no rules here. Not really. I mean, it's the golden rule. He who, he who has the gold rules, you know. And so, so I started working for this guy who who moved Asian people from the Panama Canal up to Jamaica, and I assume from there on into the United States. And they weren't slaves. They weren't. It wasn't like a human trafficking slavery. It was actually people who. Paid like up to ten thousand dollars each to be smuggled in the United States, and so, but we were doing like eighty a week out of there, and so I'd like do two trips a week, sometimes three. I mean that would be like one hundred twenty. because I was taking like 40, 45 people at a time, sometimes sixty even. And uh, I took them from uh, Boca del Toro in Panama to like almost just outside of the internet just just out, just still in international Jamaican waters in Jamaica, and then the Jamaicans came off the shore and picked them up and carried them in. I don't know what happened to them after that. And I started working; I was making good money. I was making three or four thousand dollars a week, or three week, or four thousand dollars a load. So it was like $6,000 a week, $8,000 a week. I was making pretty good money. I was happy. And I, I don't want to get too deep into it, but I, uh, what they did is they assigned me a security, uh, a guy who was supposed to work as security because we're on a big black open boat with 40 you know, Asian people. And so they assigned me this security guy who was a guy from the United States, and he was just a total disaster as a security. Yeah. And I ended up we ended up getting into a fist fight, and he got killed in the instant. I killed him. I was defending myself, and that really happened. It's 3 o'clock in the morning, floating on an open ocean, waiting on the boss to come to pass. So, what a friggin' nightmare that was. And I didn't know what to do. And I was like, you know, I'm a fugitive. So, I'm like, oh, I'm going to call the police and explain that, you know, I'm a, I'm a fugitive involved in a criminal enterprise. You don't to call the cops, man. So I call the boss. I'm like, I got a problem. So he comes to see, and he says, no. He said, I said, we have a problem. He said, we don't have a problem. You have a problem. I didn't see shit. He said, here's your money. Here's his money. You figure it out. I didn't see anything. I paid you both. So he left. And that was how they handled it. Like they don't know, they don't care. You know? So I buried the body and, uh, I, I left, I left the cartel. I left, I got out. I didn't want, I was afraid. So I, I moved, I moved my, my, I moved house to another place and just tried my very best to disappear, which didn't work. And then I came to Panama to another side of, Panama. I was living in Costa Rica at that time. I was working in Panama. I was living in Costa Rica. And then in, I did some really, I went through a really cool time in Costa Rica. I haven't told this to anybody actually, so this would be like the first time on your show. I live in this place in this country club. Let's check this story out. This is this is interesting. There was a guy named Rolf. His name isn't Rolf actually, but but I'm going to call him that. He was a German guy who had a like he ran horse. He was a pimp, but like high end, like super high end, right? So we were sitting one night in this bar in a Best Western Hotel in Irasu, like the Irasu Best Western Hotel in san jose costa rica and i'm getting drunk and the reason i drank there is because it was mostly americans and stuff and it was mostly foreigners not just americans but expat expatriates and so he comes and sits down beside me and he's bitching he said i got you know i he said i got a lot of money and i'm and so i'm asking him what he does and he didn't really tell me straight out i mean he didn't tell me oh i run horse he didn't say that but he he's like well i do this and that you know try to keep everybody happy and so, I said, well, and so i said well and i said well you know what well, are you pissed off about and so pissed off. he said well somebody this guy owes me money it's me twenty five thousand dollars and and it's not that it's the money situation it's that I can't have somebody slight me in front of this crowd because and I said, well, well, I'll go get it for you. And he said, well, how, how he said, can you do that? I said, yeah, just give me the address and tomorrow I'll go get it. So I did. I went and took a baseball bat and I went and got his fucking money. And uh, I brought him, I brought him $25,000 in cash from the guy. I mean, that's a story in itself. We'll leave it there. And I gave him the 25 grand and he was like ecstatic. He was like, holy shit. Really? I'm like, yeah, man, here's your money. And and I thought he was going to give me like three or four grand. He gives me twelve grand. He gives me half of it because he said it was like it was like money that he would lost. He didn't even think I'm about getting it. So he invited me to come to the to his country club. He said, I, you know, I want to introduce you to some people. You're very efficient, and I wanted to I want to introduce you to some people. He said, Do you have any good clothes? And I said, No, I don't actually. And so he sent me some. He sent me to get tailored. And I went and got tailored. And you got to like dress nice. And so I went to the the Berlin Country Club and. Uh, Real cariari that's what it was. Real Cariari Country Club, which is a, like a city in San Jose, but it's a city that's gated. It's a literal gated city. That the police, man, you can go in, but everybody that goes in that doesn't live there gets their, gets their identification number written down. I mean, it's like super safe. But that's where the president lives, that's where all the people that live in the National Assembly, all the people that have money live there, and they're all members of that country club. So he takes me to this country club, and he starts introducing me around. It. And starts introducing me around his like somebody can fix problems and so i'm like having a good time you know i'm getting drunk and like rubbing elbows with like the most the richest people in panama it was really cool and so there's this guy and he comes up to me He's a judge he's a, a circuit judge there you know an important guy he comes up and he says well my daughter's with this colombian guy and i don't want him to be with her and blah blah, blah. i'd really like it if you'd be able to you know encourage him not to be with my daughter because we're, you know i wanted to marry a costa rican from our case you know system and so and so. so i did i went and took my baseball bat and I, I went and convinced the Colombian guy that he wasn't going to be with the little girl anymore, and it worked. So the next week I go back to the meeting to talk to the to go back to the country club. The next three days, like three days later, I go back to the country club and the, and the judge comes running across the the room and like gives me this big hug in front of everybody and he's like, "Oh God, you saved my family! I'm so excited! I'm so thankful!" And something like, "So everything worked out to your satisfaction?" He's like, "Yeah." So I thought maybe you'd give me four or five grand. He gives me a check for twenty five thousand dollars. So I'm like, "Holy shit! This is cool stuff." what I did is I, I talked to, to the German guy who runs prostitutes. But I mean, like, we're talking about prostitutes that cost a thousand dollars a night, you know I mean? Like high end stuff. He got me set up with a, an apartment there in the country club. And I didn't do anything else for like eight, like eight months except for work in that country club there. And then I was so happy. I would have been happy living there for the rest of my life. I mean, this is, I was living B life, man. I mean like money, you know, cars had a nice place to live. I mean like, you know, untouchable really just, in the muscle for these Costa Ricans and, and foreign wealthy people but they called me one night to help them get rid of a body and I did I went I went and gave them my advice of what we should do with it and they didn't follow it and when they didn't follow it I said well screw it I'm leaving I'm not going to be a part of it you guys are like what you guys are going to do is going to get us in trouble and so I mean I'm not going to be a part of that we should do this we should do this with it and they want to do another thing with it so I, I left and like the body got found sure enough and my name came out in the in like the people that were wanting to talk about it. somebody's writing somebody was writing about who who was there somebody's squealing on us and telling us who who was there so I had to leave Costa Rica and I left that life system but that was the best life system that I ever lived ever kill anybody didn't have to kill anybody and yeah. I was just working as like this muscle for those guys. And, and that was a really good life. I mean, I, even now, even today, it was, that was such a good time. It's a shame that it got screwed up. But then when I came, I had to run again. I mean, I, I could run to Nicaragua or Panama. I got to go to one or the other because now I'm so, I'm so hot I can't travel in the air. I can't travel on a plane because I can't leave Costa Rica on a plane because they've got my name on a list. So the only way only way I can go to Nicaragua or I can go to Panama and Nicaragua is a shithole. I mean, there's nothing there. There's no work for a guy like me there. There's no money there. And in Panama, you know, it's a fairly wealthy country. Not as wealthy as Costa Rica, by the way. Costa Rica's like Beverly Hills. But Panama's a fairly, for a third world country, I mean, it's fairly wealthy. It's a developing nation, but it's a fairly wealthy country. And so, and there are a lot of foreigners there. And that's the thing. A guy like me, I can't go to somewhere there's no foreigners to stick out like a piece of salt in a, in a pepper shaker. You know, you can't. you got to go somewhere there are people like you to be able to you know, cover yourself up. So when I was in Panama, I wasn't in Panama very long. Didn't know what to do, and this is funny. I didn't know what to do, so I went to this place called Boquete. Boquete is a little expat, American expat town, and I set up shop there. <laughs> I didn't know what to do, so I'm like, "What am I going to do?" So I got to come up with a new gig, you know. And so what I did is I rented an office on on the square, and I set up shop as a psychiatrist. Dr. William Reese was my name. I was Dr. William Reese, and I set up an, as an as a psychiatrist to the to the the expat community there, the expatriate community there, and I started treating patients, man, and I was making pretty good money there too. Holy shit. And that went on for about eight months. Went on for about eight months, and I, and I got to go to all the big parties. And actually, I played cards with Mel Gibson. I was telling telling a girl about this the other day. I, I got to play cards with Mel Gibson there in Valle Escondido, which is a gated community there. As Dr. William, as a psychiatrist, Dr. William Reese. Then uh, one day, one of the guys from one of my old buddies from the cartel noticed me there, or I guess I made enough noise to where they saw me, and they pulled me back in. And when they pulled me back in, it was like, you're going to do what we're going to say or we're going to put your ass in jail. You know, we know what you did. We know how we you know. And so and I was like, screwed. Literally like screwed. So I went back to doing the same thing again. I went back to having to work as a, a ship captain or boat captain, not ship, was a boat captain for, for those guys carrying Chinese folks, human trafficking. I did that for, again, for just a little while. And in and, and my life, I was really unhappy. You know, I began to drink a lot. A lot. And I mean, I had a lot of money, a great deal of money, but my life was real shit. I mean, it was just a a terrible life. I'm not joking. This No, we're talking, we're about, we're in 2006, 2007 now. No, 2006, we're 2006. My life was a real hell. I'm controlled by people who I don't care about. I'm a fugitive. I'm really out of shape. I was really fat. I was spending all my money on hoes. I mean, just being straight and and cocaine, booze. Shit like that, and uh, I mean, and it, it was just a terrible life. I mean, I mean, I'm not gonna lie to you, man. I mean, if you wake up and or you you go out one evening and you're with four naked chicks in a bed and you got a mountain of cocaine, that's a good day. I mean, you're gonna have fun. Yeah. But you can't confuse pleasure with happiness because they're two different things completely. Because tomorrow them hoes go back to their husbands and shit, and that mountain of cocaine's gone, and and now you got to go back to work, to kill people to keep that terrible lifestyle lifestyle. So my life was really terrible. In that time period, I, I, I contemplated killing myself several times, and I just figured I never, ever, even remotely thought I'd go to prison because I'd been so e- I had so easily evaded the authorities my whole life. I mean, you know, I've been a criminal, a career criminal now for about 10 years, and it had been really easy for me to, not that long, but like six years, and it would have been really easy for me every single turn to evade the authorities. And so I, I became kind of arrogant about that, but I thought – that somebody would kill me because I offered my old boss and, and to become the boss. And so I figured that's probably what would happen to me and, and no big deal, right? Because I had a good run. Then I don't want to talk about individual murders, individual cases, stuff like that. But what happened to me was I got ratted on and um, had to run from Panama and, and through a crazy, crazy scheme of events, ended up in Nicaragua and getting picked up in Nicaragua by the Nicaraguan military. Deep into the, into the jungle, trying—I was trying to escape. But I mean, like, I'm on every television set in the nation. I mean, it was like you remember when that recently when that guy escaped from prison with that chick that was a security guard. You know, what oh, I'm talking yeah.
0: about. Oh yeah, definitely.
1: In Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, I was bigger than that. I mean, I was like on TV for like an hour every day. Then doing it. Where's donde está el bill? Where is the Wild Bill? Where is Wild Bill? And you know, like like <laughs> in the jungle, watching this on a on a battery operated television set. You know, my ass is so puckered, it's tearing a hole in the seat. You know, I'm scared to death. Yeah. So, so it was a really difficult situation. And then through a just a real, uh, just an accident, the Nicaraguan military picked me up. And they only picked me up because they're like, why is there a gringo out here in the jungle? And they picked me up, and then they took me to Managua and found out who I was. Then the madness began, and um, they flew me. I don't know what to think. You know, And I've got my wife with me. She was my wife or my girlfriend. She, was, uh, she lived as my wife. She wasn't ever my wife. I never married her, but but I, I introduced her everywhere as my wife. And she lived as my wife. And I so they, they took us, put us on a plane, all dirty, hadn't like eaten or bathed in like two weeks. And they stuck us on a plane and sent us back to Panama. I arrived in Panama, <laughs> and the president of Panama, who's actually somebody I know now, who actually... I get along with very well but back in those days he didn't know me obviously i'm just a monster to him um ricardo martinelli was his name and he is he organized this huge press conference that we've captured the beast you know like king kong is going to come off the plane and that's what happened i come off the plane they stuck a camera in my face and they they were like lower your head and put this rag over your head i'm like Fuck you! I'm not lowering my head for nobody. I'm a wild bill. I started making a joke. I started making a joke out of the whole thing. So Martinelli, I didn't speak that good of Spanish. I mean, but it was, I mean, he spoke fairly well, fairly well. But I mean, not like I do now. I'm fluent now. I'm like like a like a local. But back in those days, I spoke fairly well. And Martinelli's talking. He's talking. The president. He says, "Hey, well, we want to thank the Panamanian forces for capturing this monster." And I raised my chained hands, and all the cameras—BBC, ABC, NBC—I mean, like. All the seas, you know, uh, Telemetro, Telepica from Costa Rica. All the news cameras turn and they're on the beast, and we're going to listen. What is the beast going to say? And I said, Hey, boss, excuse me, but the Panamanian authorities are a bunch of dipshits. Y'all let me go. It was the Nicaraguans that captured me. <laughs> and there was this complete silence that dawned on for like eight <laughs> seconds, and then somebody started to laugh, and everybody started to laugh. And so then they asked me, So Well, what do you think about what do you think about your future? I said, well, the future's unsure for everybody, but I feel pretty good about the future. And they said, well, what do you think about being captured and brought back? I'm like, well, I feel pretty good. They just gave me a free plane ride on a private plane, and now I'm going to La Jolla for a vacation. La Jolla's a prison here. And I said, I'm going to La Jolla for a little vacation, and I'm sure we'll work something out. And everybody just dying laughing. You know, like, that's not what they were expecting at all. And they were expecting me like be all ashamed and be like some kind of crazy monster or something. So I played games with them, but then they took me to the district attorney's office, and then the madness began. Now, all of the things I'm talking to you about, from the moment I was, from the moment I picked myself up and ran from Panama, I wrote in a memoir. And the first year, my first year in prison, I wrote about it in a book that I, I published called "Long Live the King, Wild Bill." If you guys want to know more about me, I yes, want you guys to go and check that book out. "Long Live the King, Wild Bill." Pick it up on Amazon. Also, if you want to interact with me, anybody that's out there in the world listening can interact directly with me. By either going to Facebook at Friends of Brother Bill or you can go to Instagram at Holiness Bill. And I'll ask the, our generous host, JR, if he won't post those on somewhere. I'm oh, sure absolutely. He'll be able to figure it out.
0: For the listeners, I'll post those links in the episode description along with. Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and everything, yeah, we'll definitely, awesome. definitely get your contact info and uh, your book info out there for sure. Because I actually am uh, going to be ordering the book as well. Let me ask your opinion. What? What? There's another book written about you as well, wasn't there? Huh? The the Jolly yeah, Roger. Yeah, a real
1: cocksucker wrote that book. I like, to, I like to address that. I've been trying to address that guy. I've been trying to
0: find mean, that. Got to talk. Address to him me. right now if you want to. What happened? Is he on? No, absolutely not. But if you want to air it out, yeah. air it out. Cause I, I saw that when I was looking for your book.
1: Yeah, exactly. Here's what happened about that. I, in 2013, my lawyer, Claudia Alvarado, who's a good friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, like my sister
0: said, Hey Bill, we
1: got a guy that's going to write a book about you. Let's make some money. I said, let's do it. You know, cause like shit, being famous hasn't paid me anything to the, to the moment. This was in 2013. I wasn't even, uh, didn't even have a sentence yet. And by this time I'd already put myself in charge completely of the prison. I was already like burning the prison. There in in this this prison that doesn't exist anymore called the W Public Prison. Anyway, so this guy Nick Foster comes down. He's a skinny guy, tall guy, very well dressed, British guy, English guy. Comes in, he shakes my hand. Says, then we sit down and say, okay, dude, what what? Give me your proposal. What you want to do? And he said, well, I'm writing a book about you. I mean, I can't write a book about you without talking to you, right? And so I'm like, okay, cool. Well, let's do an interview, man. I said, I'll give, dude, give me ten thousand dollars. We'll do the interview, which I thought was a very meager sum. Now, I understand, before anybody says, oh, you greedy bastard, well, hey man, in family prison. They don't give you soap. They don't give you toilet paper. They don't give you food. They don't. They don't don't give you food. They don't give you uniforms. You gotta buy all that shit. If you don't have any money, you would fucking die. So I mean, this is the reality of my life. I I have to generate cash. It's not like oh I'm being greedy because I want a candy bar. No, I mean if I don't make any money, like I just sent my girlfriend today to buy my food. It was three hundred dollars for a month just for the food, just for my food. You know, it's three hundred bucks. So I said to him. So, I, like, here I am airing out my the complaints of my life to you guys, your listeners. But, I mean, it's just the truth, you know. You have to generate cash in order. So, I said, give me 10 grand and I'll do your interview. And he says, well, it's not ethical for me to pay a murderer to talk about murders. I'm like, it's not ethical for you to pay a murderer. It's ethical for you to make a million dollars off selling a fucking book. And I said, well, I want to, my exact words were, well, why don't you just go and fuck yourself? So, I got up, I stood up, and I walked out of the room. And he left. Then, like three, two years later, I don't remember how long I left, two years later, I saw that he published a book called The Jolly Roger Social Club based on an interview that he had with me. He never had an interview with me. That never occurred. And and I read some, I didn't read, I wouldn't I wouldn't buy such a piece of garbage, but I read in one of the reviews where he talked about in the, how he had confronted me. like, man, I would have tore his head off if he talked to me that way. What did he talk to me? What, what in the world is this goon? And, in, in, you know, Western journalism is really like dragon It's supposed to be like a, like a respected journalist, man. What a bunch of crap. Anyway, so that book is garbage. Please don't yeah. buy it. Or if you do buy it, take it with a grain of salt because it's a fantasy.
0: Yeah, I read a lot of the reviews on it, and they were basically saying, well, I mean, he, he tried. Some of them weren't very good <laughs> reviews, So so you should know that. Uh, so, but I mean, it's a
1: pretty, pretty ridiculous story. And um, and then another run-in I had with the media, and I'll tell you something. So I lived, I'll, I'll, I'll go like this. I lived nine years in the David Public Prison as the, I organized the religious services. I organized the mafias into a workable system on the inside where they didn't kill any, each other anymore. And I put myself in a position to be benefited enormously financially because of that. And because of that, like when you're gracing the parties with more money than they make in their salary, like the head prison guard makes, like the head, the head of the chief, the security chief of the jail makes twelve hundred dollars a month, but I'm giving him two thousand dollars a month. Who does he work for? He works for me. So I had a really good life. But one thing happened. I, I was really, I be, mean, I grew a conscience, It's hard to believe for a guy like me. I know, but but I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal savior, and that's hard for a lot of people to believe but it's true. And I. I grew a conscience when I was there, and I, I saw how the people who were poor, the actual Panamanians who were poor, were living, and it was detestable. I mean, there are guys there that were like eat up with tuberculosis and AIDS and stuff. And so, so we tried to do something for those guys. We All tuberculosis, I cured. I didn't do it myself with my, not my magic hand, but I I'm organized, I'm organized a drive to cure all tuberculosis in the prison, all the, the ladies from the churches in the United States. You know, helped us, and, and we got that done. And that was a completely honest thing I did. I'm really proud of that. Actually, I don't know how many we like 26 guys. So I don't know how many guys would have died. Several, you know, at least half of those guys would have died if we didn't um, So that was good. And then, and so we did some things. And, and I, but I grew a conscience about watching how the authorities treated, mistreated the back. Like there were guys there who were serving more time than they're even supposed to because they lost their papers. And then instead of letting them go, they're just like, I oh, fuck it, leave them there. So I started speaking out of, about that and i i was in my room one day and I, a lady named sophie evans from the daily mirror contacted me sophie evans said she wanted a british newspaper reporter said she wanted to do a story about human rights in panama and i said that'd be great and that's exactly what i wanted to do and i asked her and so i did an interview with her and she asked me about how i live compared with the other prisoners and i said well i, w- I don't want you to do a story about me i want it to be about the prisoners because i don't need the heat so she, she said she wanted to do an interview, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, she made the interview about me, all the privileges that I have in prison, and showed the, showed the video call, which she promised she wouldn't do online. Oh, man. The government of Panama flipped. And this was in the early part of 2019. And they began trying to transfer me to this new hellhole called Sector C. It was a new place that they had made for enemies of the state, like prisoners that are like, not like dangerous, not like Hannibal Lecter prisoners, but prisoners that they're angry with. And so in October, I lost that battle and they come and pick me up and, and took me into this place here. I've been here for three years and a few months. And this, if you want to know what hell is, man, I wasn't a really good person. There weren't hardly any murders. Everything was cool. Here, somebody dies every two days. There were 48 hours somebody's murdered. We just had a gun battle here last Saturday. a week ago
0: today. I saw that video. Another reason for the listeners to follow him on Instagram is because I saw that video mm-hmm that was pretty intense man
1: the first you check this out the first year that i was here they had a gun battle that killed 15 15 prisoners group, prisoner on prisoner we're talking about gun battle. we're talking prisoner on prisoner. prisoners here to walk around with almost all of my armed with handguns and then there's the occasional ak-47 on the inside of prison um you know this is this is a hell on earth and I, i'm writing I, actually it's done i finished a, my second book called concentration camp 2000 and it's about it's a play-by-play account of what happened during the 19 the 2019 uh, La Jolla Christmas massacre uh, that's documented also in uh, the New York Times covered that story actually you know back in 2019 at Christmas time it was I think it was the 17th of December 2019 anyway 15 gang members were killed in, in, a, in a, a war that happened thats with the gang and like people said back home like how is that even possible how could they have a gang war inside a prison for 15 when well, like all these people are killed with guns and stuff and and if you want to know that answer the wait till the book comes out it'll be out in sometime in february and go pick it up and in that book concentration camp 2000 deals one with that massacre it's the only account the only written account first time i witnessed i spoke to all the guys who were involved i mean i talked to people outside they were it, it happened during a family visit meaning when little kids were here and stuff and like even one little kid got smashed in the head by a cop a cop, killed, a cop almost killed this little kid like an eight-year-old kid with a with a, with a you know a stick with a you know a billy club and you hit him in the head and it was just a, a whole bunch of crazy shit happened it's all in the book men i wrote about sector c what is sector C? sector c is a soft torture for hire facility that panama runs for the international community and for themselves especially for the international community and, and uh, you know the things that happened there here, as well as the third part of the book deals with the wisdom that I've learned being under such duress and pain for the last you know twelve years, but especially the last three years. Now here in hell, I'm the pastor of the church, which is difficult to believe, but but it's true. I, I preach tomorrow, actually, I preach Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays here, and we talk about things like how to change our awareness about about treating other people the way we want to be treated. We talk, obviously, about Jesus Christ. Um, we talk about treating other people how you want to be treated. We talk about, um, like, tomorrow we're talking about how our mouths are, are, are devices that, that God listens to. Like, if I say to you that I... I hate myself. Everything's bad in my life. God says, yes, that's exactly how it is. But if I say to myself, if I say to you, man, things are not so bad, they're going to get better. God says, yes, that's exactly what's going to happen to you. So we have to be careful about what we say. We have to be careful about how we think. Um, a lot of us are here because of low self-esteem. We think that the only thing that we can do is kill people, hurt people, rob people, shit like that. And and so we're working with these kids, the young kids. There's 22 guys in our church here, and I work with these young kids trying to keep them from being like me. And you wouldn't believe the like crazy. This is this always shocks me when somebody says to me, they say it to me all the time, I can't wait. I'm, I want to be like you, Bill. My like, God, you want, you want a 46-year sentence for homicide? No, but I want to be famous. Well, well, learn how to sing or something, man, if you want to be famous. Yeah. Don't kill people. You know, do something, you know, better than that. And so yeah. that's what my life's about. I've changed my life over. And so it's one of the reasons I'm doing I'm obviously trying to sell books. And that's true. Yeah. Trying to gain attention for what's going on in Panama. But, but, like, really the main reason that I'm doing what I'm doing is because I, I want to give something back to society. Not just society. I don't really care about society, if you want the truth. But I want to give something back to these kids that have never had a chance. When you got kids walking around here. that From the time they were three years old, their mother was a prostitute. Um, ain't nobody cared about them their whole life. They would walk around the street alone. And the only family they know are the other gangbanger, you know, the other gangbanging kids. So they run up and down the street being a gang, being happy, sh- and that's the only thing that they know. They don't know anything. Else. And so I ask you, is this kid who has no education at all, maybe he can read, maybe he can't, is he going to grow up to be a doctor or a lawyer? No, he's going to grow up to be a gangbanger because that's the only thing that he knows. We've got to reach those kids.
0: Yeah, That's honestly a big part for me is, what, what do you think about the people who were like, oh, this guy turned to Christianity, he's such a hypocrite, you know, he killed five people and didn't give a shit then, why does he give a shit now? Going on that, you talked about a little bit ago having a conscience now. What was going through your mind when you actually took the first hit job compared to when you took the last hit job? From the first one to the last one, was did it get easier? Did your conscience just kind of go away a little bit more each time? How did that all evolve inside you?
1: I think that... Even from the first, I, I used the excuse. Well, I'm just a weapon. I'm not killing you. I don't want to kill these people. I'm just a weapon. And if I don't do it, somebody else will. And that's true. There's not a lie. That's not a lie. If I didn't do it, somebody else would have. But that doesn't justify what I did, does it? I mean, it, it really doesn't. But that's the justification I used in the time. when, Like, if you like to kill people, you're sick. There's something wrong with you. You know, If you enjoy hurting other people, there's something wrong with you. I didn't enjoy it. I was, it was really nerve wracking to me from beginning to end. I was always nervous before a job. And like i go over it 16 times in my mind how I was going to do it. And, and like I never, you get, I know guys that, that were like psychopaths that enjoyed killing people, enjoyed hurting people and stuff. But I, I tried, and this doesn't make it any better, but I mean, it just talks about who I am. You're asking who am I? Well, I, I everything, I always did the job in a way that nobody knew they were going to die until they were dead. Like literally, like nobody had an, any idea of what was about to happen because I, I don't think that I have the balls to say, okay, J.R., I've been sent to kill you. Now you're going to die. You know, I don't. Yeah, it ain't a movie. Yeah. Exactly. I'm not, <laughs> and, like a lot of things can go wrong. I mean, if some guy, some guy knows that he's going to die, like he's going to fight like hell, you know what I mean? Because he knows he's going to die. So he ain't going to just, I mean, like, not everybody. There are people who would just roll over, but you don't ever know who is and who isn't. So, I mean, like it's better to keep the mark happy. Yeah. Um, before they so I was nervous, like horribly nervous every time. Like I didn't want something to go wrong. I didn't want to kill myself. And afterward, it was a, like a great release. Thank God that's over. You know? Yeah. And so this is how I've defined it before. And this is how i define it again at the time period. It's, this is a crude analogy.
0: Yeah.
1: Like if I bring you a turd on a plate, a piece of shit on a plate, and I say to you, I'm going to give you $8 million if you eat this human turd you take a bite of the turd, you know, it's 8 million yeah, it's
0: eight million bucks.
1: And then you get the money and you go. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that you like to eat shit. You're not a, you know, you're yeah. not a shit connoisseur just because, I mean, that's me. I didn't enjoy killing people. It was just a way to continue that horrible lifestyle that I thought that I needed to live. At the end, by the end of the time, I was like, didn't have a conscience. I had drowned my conscience in alcohol and the vaginas of strange women. So, I mean, I didn't have a conscience at all by the time that I left, and I don't think it was like three or four months after I was even arrested. When I was sober, and like could look at my life and see you've destroyed your own life and the life of many other people. You imbecile! And I realized that you know these are my actions that caused this. I can't blame anybody else because when you're doing shit like that, you blame everybody else. You blame the situation. Nobody understands my situation. And I mean, wouldn't it have been better if we could just go back in a time machine and do the two weeks that the judge gave me in West North Carolina when I was when I was you know 25 years old? But You know, we don't have a time machine, and so I can't do anything about it. And the only thing I can do is to day forward. You ask me what would I say about people. say, well, you turned to Christianity because you're in prison. I didn't have to turn to Christianity because I was in prison. I actually could do a whole lot better for myself if I didn't, if I was really corrupt, actually. I I, I did for the first few years in prison. I did really well as a corrupt mafia organizer. And so I'm not doing that anymore because I don't want to. I'm not doing that anymore because I took the decision, I made the decision to do the right thing. Am I a champion? Well, certainly not. I, I, I'm not. I don't. I'm not trying to be an example or, or. I don't think that I am an example. But it makes me happy. When I was killing people, when I was free, I couldn't sleep. It took me a liter of vodka every night. You know, a thousand milliliters, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit less than a quart of vodka every night, just to sleep. I mean, you didn't know who was going to kill you. You didn't know who was going to, you know, was there a little a helicopter with, you know, SWAT team guys dressed in black going to drop on top of my house in the middle of the night? Or, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. So, I mean, there's like no rest ever. And, and I was really unhappy. I hated everybody, including myself. Today, after this interview, I'm going to roll up on the bed. I'm going to go sleep like a baby. I wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning and go do my job. Enjoy my, and I enjoy my life. My life's so good. I mean, I'm in hell. I'm living in hell. I'm living in a horrible situation. Um, there's death all around me you know, but I'm happy you yeah. know and I'm happy because I'm doing the right thing and my conscience is clean for the first time in my whole
0: life yeah and that's a big thing man that's uh, I've never really heard it put that way and that's that's a good way of putting it I guess man like I couldn't imagine getting away with it for so long I would think personally for me like after the first one I would have just been so fucking paranoid man and just getting away with it time and time again. Like, how'd you get away with it for so long?
1: Well, it's pretty good. My job, I mean, my job was to kill people for money. Like if somebody says, you know, it's not, it's not even like getting away with it. It's if your clients get away with it, you get away with it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because like a professional killer, I mean, like even in the States, I mean, there's a lot of professional killers in the States, man, a lot. And I mean, I don't know how many, I wouldn't even dare to guess, but I'd say I'd more than a thousand right now operating, a lot more than a thousand operating all over the place, and most of the time people just go missing. You know, they don't, if there's no body, there's no crime, and so if you clean up and do your job well, there's really very little chance that you're going to actually be arrested in the United States. I don't know these statistics are old. I haven't looked them up in years, but I'm sure it's probably still the same. You know, in the last five years, I've seen the statistics and like about 40 or 35 percent of homicides in the States go unresolved.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. So
1: it's not strange that a murder would go unresolved in the United States or Europe or somewhere.
0: Yeah, it's actually more now. It's about 60, 60 percent. They now. go unresolved? Yeah, about 60 percent go unsolved. Right? And I mean, that's yeah, it's a uh, well, unfortunately, like they a lot of the bigger cities are a lot more understaffed. So that's just like an average number. So like a lot of the mm-hmm. bigger cities kind of push that number up quite a bit for all the other places right. that are actually, you know, solving murders and shit. But yeah, last yeah, I heard it was around by, 60.
1: Gang by. it'd be really hard to solve a murder in a gang, somewhere there's a lot of gangs because nobody saw nothing. And, oh, like, yeah. How are you going to solve that? How did you get caught? My, the client got me to ask me to kill his wife. And I did. Uh, I didn't want to. Actually, I refused that job. I've refused a lot of jobs in my life. Yeah. I refused that job. And then the, the, the guys who ran our, our operation came to me and said, no, this guy's a big time, tra- you know, drug trapper. You got to do the job. And I said, no, I refused again. And then they sent, you know, people to encourage me to do the job. Let's say, so I decided, well, I got to do it. So I did the job. It was really hard for me to do actually, because I knew the girl.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So anyway, I did the job and then, the same guy ratted because his family came, her family came looking for the girl. He came looking for her. And he, I was in Costa Rica on, on vacation in the mountains. I had a little cabin up in the mountains next to Turialba, which is an active volcano. Beautiful, like a, a view of the active volcano every day, erupting, beautiful thing. And I didn't even know what was going on. And a, a friend of mine from the Panamanian Dijota, which is jota D.I.J., which is the same as, was like the Pan- the American FBI. It's the Panama's version of the FBI. He, he called me. I worked with them a lot. I was like actually with, with the government. He called me and he said, "Hey man, you're they just issued an arrest warrant for you and a, and a search warrant for your house." And I said, "What?" And he said, "I don't know. You got somebody infiltrado. You got a rat." And I'm like, "Well, my house, there's nothing, man. They ain't even no guns in my house. Let them search my damn house." Well, what I didn't know was that the guy had took a whole bunch of the belongings of the girl and put like on the kitchen table of my home in you know, my damn watchy man. There's a, a watchy man in Panama is the guy who like, is like a security. The security for my home was a big house. It was a huge like mansion on the water. The security guard for the house is, was an Indian guy, a local, like an indigenous guy. And he just saw another gringo and, he, and the guy's like, guy oh, I'm Bill's brother. and So he just let him in, you know, he wouldn't, I don't know. to him, it seemed like the right thing to do. So that's the guy, and the guy puts all of the stuff on the kitchen table in my house, and and then the cops come and do a search because he called and asked them to, and they find the stuff, and then he's he's clear, the family's not breathing down his neck anymore, and I'm screwed. Yeah, and that's pretty much what happened.
0: Um, what were your terms for turning down certain jobs and then taking other ones? What, did you have like certain um, requirements or thing? You know, how did that all work? I did kill kids. They they got me for killing a kid, but I didn't
1: know it was a kid when I killed him. I didn't know he was underage. He was seventeen. I didn't I didn't know that he was a child. He was a seventeen year old boy involved in a criminal enterprise. Mm-hmm. I didn't and like I get a lot of, I get a lot of people who get a flack for that actually online too. Oh, you're a child killer. I didn't know he was a kid. I didn't know how old he was, and and I didn't ask him for his driver's license. I mean the order came down to kill him. That's what I did. And so, I mean that didn't make it good or bad or anything, but it wasn't something I was like thinking about. So I didn't kill kids and I didn't I didn't kill civilians, meaning people who weren't involved in the criminal enterprise, who weren't involved in, in the mafia or in some way. And that's why I I tried very hard to turn the last job that actually put me in prison down because not because she was a woman, just because she's like a wife of a drug lord. I mean, she's not like really a, not really really in the game. She's just like some good lord's hoe, you know, I mean like that's not mm-hmm. very fair killer and then the reason he wanted her to kill her was because he, he he had a new girl and he put a whole bunch of his stuff in her name and so he wanted to get divorced but if he got a divorce then he's going to lose his his empire mm. because everything he put in his wife's name so anyway
0: yeah
1: oh the how when we weave a, a wicked web and, and i'm talking about myself i'm not necessarily him him too but when I would, but you know the smallest thing makes us fall when we're so full of shit. So yeah my life was a house of cards and you know, I couldn't stand up any investigation or anything like that. I was already a fugitive from the United States. So I ran and was pretty successful at running for a little while and then they picked me up and
0: now I'm here. And you're in one of the worst damn prisons in the world probably. Certainly the worst prison I, I don't I, I saw a video
1: of Haiti's prisons. This is so much worse than Haiti, which is the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. What makes this prison so bad is you know, there's no health care at all. You get a heart attack, you have a stroke, you have an appendix, appendix burst, you're dead. And that's just it. Um, I almost died in June this year, actually. I had a, a blood pressure issue. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And it turned out to be that they were poisoning the food. That they were, Not just my food, everybody's food, but they were poisoning the food um, that they sent. Because they. here's how your food situation works here they send a ration of food twice a day lunchtime and supper time but it's like what was today's ration was like one cup like a coffee cup of white rice and a hot dog one uncooked hot dog that's a portion of food from for for an adult male for lunch so i don't know somebody was trying to kill some of these boys in here and i drank it and i think i don't know I, i ate the food i ate the food because. So I was in a bad situation. I didn't have any money. I couldn't bring inside to eat that crap for like a month. And during that time period, they poisoned the food and a whole bunch of people, several died actually. But I I had a blood pressure issue that my blood pressure would go up to like 210 over 120, you know, and I'm in shape, man. I mean, I was mm-hmm. fat when I was a killer and everything, but I'm in shape now, I box and keep myself in order, you know? And, um, that's, oh, I'm 43 years old. So anyway, so I, I finally got him to take me to a doctor, and the doctor said, Oh, it's stress. Stress, you imbecile. I am stress. That's not, that's not what's wrong with me. Obviously, your blood pressure doesn't go to 210 because you're stressed. It goes to 140. I mean, it's just a little bit high. So like, are you out of your mind? So what I ended up doing was just checking it online, and, and it, it looked like it, it, those are symptoms of poisoning, several different kinds of poisoning. So what I did ended up having to do in order to live, I, I didn't eat for eight days. Eat, I didn't eat nothing. I mean, like not one grain of rice, not anything for eight days. I fasted and I drank about uh, sixty gallons of water maybe in that time period, yeah. and I'm uh, now. So it, my system recovered. But that's just an example of the healthcare system that they have here that they don't have. So, so there's no health care. There's no security. You've got to be your own security. Anybody can kill anybody here. Just because you're a big tough guy doesn't mean you. I mean, like, you're actually a bigger target. Do you, like, you want to kill somebody in prison, here's how you do it, right? You find some guy likes to use a lot of cocaine. You said, hey, come here. he's how like many, how many years are you serving? 50 years. That's the maximum sentence. I'm already serving 50 years. Okay. I'm going to give you a gun. I want you to go kill Bill. But when you kill him... I want you to take the gun and turn it into the cops and tell the cops that you killed him. And what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to send your family $5,000 and I'm going to give you a lifetime supply of cocaine. This guy's happy man. Shit. It's a great deal for him. He knows he's never getting out of jail. He's going to be high all the time. And his family in the streets going to get five grand. So, I mean, like, you can poke a hole in anybody that way here. So, like, you got to be really careful and not. And, and, like, Panama's another weird place, too, because, like, in you know, an American prison. I don't know. I've never been in prison in America, but, like, the things that I read about and stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of violence, like they stab you and stuff, and they fight, fist fight and stuff. Ain't none of that shit here. They just kill you. Yeah. Because they're like chicken shits. So like they smile, oh, okay, everything's okay, and then when you walk away, they shoot you in the back of the head. You know. What I mean, so there's no. Got to be really careful here. You, you don't want to piss anybody off. You don't want to. Yeah. Keep your head down. And keep your mouth shut. So, yeah, that it makes sort of a thing. lot of
0: sense. You know, it's probably what we'd all be doing, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> what What's your daily? Li- Before I know you're on a time limit here, and just for the listeners. Before we recorded, Bill has agreed to come on again for a for a second part to the interview. You know, we're going to have more questions and stuff like that, I'm sure. But uh, what's your daily life like in there right now?
1: Well, so I'll give you my today. My day's Saturday. Saturday's a normal day for me. I'm the pasiero. That means, literally means man in the hall. But what that is, is like babysitter. Like I'm in the Supermax facility. All the biggest gangsters and criminals, you know, the, the gang heads, the... Uh, international drug traffickers, the drug lords, uh, sicarios, uh, the sicarios, the murderers, the, the hitmen are all here where I am. There are 157 of us, but I'm in charge with 22 of them. 22 of those guys are my guys. So what do I do? I get up in the morning at 5 o'clock. Normally, I do I pray a little bit, meditate, uh, check my, my Instagram and stuff like that. They come and pop my hatch at 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock in the morning, they open my door. I'm out. I go out, I clean everything up. I got you know, like a like a maid. First I'm the maid, I clean everything up. Now everybody here is locked in, so it's not like the only person that's loose is me and everybody else gets an hour out in groups of three men. So like seven to eight, three men are let out and they're loose in the in, in the patio and the patio is, is, is like the part the inside part. We never get outside. I've not seen the sun in three years. I've not seen one ray of sunlight in three years, three years and two months. It took me a year to get on top of the situation here. Mm-hmm. I, okay, so, so I like to be in charge of the thing here. It took me a year. I, so, so I clean up everything and then I get ready for breakfast. And then I the breakfast, and I, I distribute the breakfast, the food to everybody, those 22 men that are here. If there's a conflict during the day, it's me who has to resolve it. Um, I run the church. Like today, there was no church, but yesterday there was. Yesterday at 10 o'clock in the morning, on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 10 o'clock, and Sundays at 10 o'clock in the morning, we have a, we have a church service. It's a unity church service. It's non-denominational. Everybody's welcome. And the guys really, they really come. And when I say they come to church, I meaning that they're all standing on a box inside their cell looking out the door. That's how they come to church. And it's me and center, and like, and like people really, but they really participate. I mean, it's, it's, there's a high participation rate. Then lunch comes, same, same story. Give, give away all the food. When the food, then I got to go back like an hour later and pick up all the trays and send them back to bring more food. And then again, I do that at four, four o'clock and I keep the place clean. I have to keep the place clean. And when there's a conflict anywhere in secrecy out of the 157 men, they come and they say, Hey, Bill, let's go. We got to take you. And so then I got to go and sit down at a desk and they bring me the guys. and We go, well, what's the problem? Well, you know, we got to, we got we got to talk about it. We got to don't kill each other. Let's see if we can figure it out. You know? So that's how that's my, that's my life. It's not bad. It's not a bad life. I'll tell you the truth. In the other prison, it was much better. I got laid all the time in the other prison um, by women, So that, you know, that was cool. And that's another thing. We'll talk about that on the next show. We'll talk about that on the next show. That'll be a good thing to tease everyone with. I, I had, um, from 2000, I got divorced. or I didn't get divorced because I wasn't married, but I, we, I broke up with the girl that I got arrested with in 2013. Um, she started seeing somebody else. And so we broke up. And, and then I went through a period of being like a real whore. <laughs> and I was famous, you know, and like all the chicks in Panama wanted to fuck me, and so so I did that for a while, so that was really cool, I got to do that, I didn't never get to do that I was like really nervous around women my whole life, and I got over that pretty quick, yeah, <laughs> between those years neto yeah, neato, you know, it was like really neato, and, like, girls are like, I'm, I'm gonna come and visit you and bring you food and, and fuck you, okay, oh, that sounds yeah, that great, sounds you know, like, <laughs> so like I had, like in my sexual life, I had a better sex life and almost any, you know, I had, between those years, I had, like, every man's fantasy. It was every man's fantasy. Beautiful women. I mean, like, just because I was famous, you know. Yeah. And, and so, so it was pretty neat.
0: Yeah, we'll definitely get into it. we'll talk some... about that
1: next on the next go-round. Yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah, I really
1: appreciate you. I'm looking forward to coming back on. You guys come and visit me at Holiness Bill on Instagram, friends of Brother Bill on facebook go buy long live the king while bill drag your buns over there and get that book you'll like it It'll be, it's really enlightening about what life's like a third world prison yeah,
0: all right, absolutely and for the listeners i will put links to those in the episode description uh when i post it on social media and everything like that so yeah bill i suppose man uh thank you again for coming on i suppose we uh if you want to we can do the same time same day next week man do it all right let's do it let's do it saturday saturday 6 15 we'll do it bro sounds good man i will talk to you then i really appreciate you coming on thank you so much all right i'll talk to you later